Praise the Lord. My name is Josh, if you don't know me. And uh, if you don't know my family, that's us right there. Um, my, yes, indeed, my beautiful wife, Chapel, of 11 years, not 11 years old, but 11 years of marriage. My oldest daughter, Amelia, and our youngest daughter, Clara. Amelia's four and Clara's two. Um, I'm happy to be here tonight. Um, I want to thank Paul for giving me this opportunity as well. Um, it's, it's not too often that a guy that has a lot of stage fright is asked to speak, but <laughs> um, I'm being obedient. Um, so we've been taking a look um, in a series entitled This Is Us. We've been taking a look at the early church. And, um, and kind of what their mode was after uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and were baptized. And Paul took us through the first night and um, showed us what we could have an expectation of, and that is to be endued with power. And that prayer was the vehicle of, of changing hope, taking hope into expectation. And then Stacy shared about what being a teammate is, um, you know, a teammate on, as, a, as a new Christian, what they were doing after they, were, they accepted Christ. And that's, um, they were devoting themselves to sound doctrine, to the teaching of Jesus' disciples. Um, they were devoting themselves to relationship with the disciples. And they were also devoting themselves to communion and to prayer. And then Brian shared something very applicable to me right now. <laughs> he shared about boldness and uh, the boldness of Peter and John as they were arrested and brought before a tribunal and before the religious leaders, how they expressed Jesus to them with boldness and the resurrection, which they completely denied. And then uh, last month, Paul spoke with us about uni unity without uniformity. How we're, we're a diverse church, um, and there's a lot to be done to take care of people, and how it shouldn't be done by a select few. It needs to be people finding their place, finding their table, and serving. Tonight, um, we pick up on the journey. A little bit has happened since, uh, since our last meeting, but Stephen, he sees a vision of heaven as he's being stoned to death. Philip runs down a chariot, and let me stop right there. <laughs> this is my ADD kicking in, but I don't know if you guys ever play this game, but when I get to heaven... I want to see Elijah and Philip race because Elijah in the Old Testament, if you don't know, he runs down a chariot and past the chariot. Um, and we see here that Philip runs down a chariot and then no big deal. He's teleported to a different city. Um, Paul has his Damascus Road encounter. Peter prays for a girl named Tabitha who's dead and she's raised to life again. And then Peter has a vision as he's praying in an upper room about how 
God has a plan for the Gentiles as well. And then he goes and preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, and they believe, are baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. An entire year passes, and more and more people are coming to the faith, and that's when the early church becomes known as Christians. So, after skipping over all that, the miraculous, uh, we come to our passage tonight, and it's somewhat of an essential kind of foundational truth that I think um, needs to be communicated because sometimes we might have a misunderstanding. I know I did, and God showed me um, through this passage that we're about to read um, just how little I knew about this subject. So let's look at Acts 12, which starts, Now at the time Herod the king arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to harm them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to have Peter arrested as well. This was during the days of unleavened bread, the Passover week. When he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, turning him over to four squads of soldiers, of four each, to guard him. So 16 soldiers in rotation throughout the night, planning after the Passover to bring him out before the people for execution. So Peter was kept in prison, but fervent and persistent prayer for him was being made to God by the church. Now I want you to look at that last statement. Fervent and persistent prayer for him was being made to God by the church. And so this is us. We pray constantly. Prayer isn't a particularly new concept or revolutionary, um, radical occurrence in this, in this day and age. You know, it, it, where we live in the Bible Belt, I think that it's almost an expectation, right? Whenever we go out to eat, we see people pray all the time for their food. Um, it's a part of mealtime, and even at my job, uh, we have a designated Christian that when it's time to eat, whenever we have a company meal, he stands up and he says grace, and, and then we eat. And by all accounts, our experience here isn't anything like the early church or Daniel or even some, day, um, some countries other than our own. I grew up in a church. Uh, my mom's adopted dad, my grandfather, uh, pastored our church gathering, and he had a passion for absolute truth and sound doctrine, almost uh, to a fault, because our church gathering slowly kind of melted away. But I remember attending a prayer service every Tuesday. Um, there might be three people there, there might be five, ten, but we attended faithfully every Tuesday. We prayed over all our meals, like I said, and before bed. I attended prayer breakfasts, and also, I don't know if they still do this at schools today, but uh, we had something called See You at the Pole, where we would gather around the flagpole and pray. I've prayed for complete strangers, and the list goes on. I think, though, that as I began, it, or I was developing in my walk with the Lord, and I was reading Scripture gaining a head knowledge about Scripture, I started down a road of kind of belief and faith. 
And that is that the measure of my faith directly and almost was the prevailing factor that affected the potency of my prayers. It was almost the only factor. Or maybe faith in Jesus or even faith in the miracle itself. I read how the disciples and the Apostle Paul wrote that so-and-so did this um, and were healed because of their faith. So I believed that I must not have enough faith because X and Y healing didn't happen. And I prayed with faith and I believed. Faith is the conduit, after all, by which healing occurs. And these guys didn't receive their healing, so I must not have enough faith. I was defeated in my prayer life. But let's read the rest of the story. Verses 6 through 16 read, The very night before Herod was to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries were in front of the door guarding the prison. Kind of a bleak outlook. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared beside him, and a light shone in the cell. The angel struck Peter's side and awakened him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. I kind of imagine Peter kind of taking a, a fighter's stance, right? Because Peter was the one that cut off the soldier's ear, remember? And then the soldier said to him, Prepare yourself and strap on your sandals to get ready for whatever may happen. Okay? We're going to fight. He did so. Then the angel told him, put on your robe and follow me. And Peter, probably at this point looking around like, really? What's happening? <laughs> he, and Peter went out following the angel. He didn't realize what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first guard and the second, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city. Of its own accord, it swung open for them, like at Target. And they went out and went along one street, and at once the angel left him. When Peter came to his senses, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting to do to me. When he realized what had happened, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many believers were gathered together and were praying continually and had been praying all night. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she failed to open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gateway. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept, they kept saying, it's his angel. But meanwhile, Peter kept knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were completely amazed. Um, I don't know about you guys, but where did you see the incredible faith in the miracle of what they were praying for? They were undoubtedly, I mean, by all accounts, they were praying for Peter. He was a leader of the church. They were praying for him all night, but yet they were amazed. They didn't even believe that it was Peter. Rhoda came in and she said, hey, Peter's outside. And they said, no, it's probably his angel. He's gone. He's a goner. Even though we were just praying that he wouldn't be, he's a goner. We know it. 
You know, it sounds scriptural, I think, on the surface that we must have this, there's this faith meter and we have to fill it all the way up in our prayer life. And I don't want you to miss what God's saying. He's saying, yes, there's a, there's a pinch of truth in there. We have to have faith. Obviously, we have to have faith. But you're concentrating on the formula rather than being in a love relationship. You see, it's like you're approaching prayer as an engineer or a mathematician instead of a lover. And I'm sorry, I know we have a couple engineers out here. That's not a slap to you. Um, but the idea behind it is it's formula and structure versus intimacy and relationship. You know, I think we live in an extraordinary time. Um, I can take a college course online in just about every subject. I can learn pretty much any skill that I want to from YouTube. In fact, just the other day I was looking up how I can make a built-in bench in my dining room. You know, we have almost every answer that we could ever desire to, or need to know on Google. <laughs> take out our device, we can Google anything any question and find any answer. We know more about this universe, the galaxy, our solar system, this planet, you and I as human beings, more so than ever before in history. We have the entire canon as an advantage, the entire canon of Scripture. And then we have other um, documents that were written around the same time that we can read. Some of us have experienced extraordinary events. And in today's day and age, we have the ability to share them live as they happen, right? With Instagram Live or whatever it's called, or Facebook Live. Hello, Double Rainbow on Sunday. Or Saturday, I'm sorry. Um, but basically, those of us that have our eyes open, can plainly see that it all declares the existence of God and the glory of what occurred on the cross and through the resurrection. So if you're like me, faith isn't something that's difficult. I have the faith. But something was still missing. And I literally cry out after my, or not around my kids when they were sleeping because that's the uh, unforgivable sin. But I would literally cry out to God, God, can you hear my prayers? I have more than the faith of a mustard seed. Use me. To which he would reply, Yes, I hear you. Can you hear me? God began to show me through my relationships three things that impacted my prayer life and therefore my relationship with him. Excuse me. I went through a time where I was constantly working. And I mean, I was just always busy. And busy to the point of waking up at around 6 o'clock, saying a quick prayer because it was part of my to-do. And then at 6.30, 7 o'clock, starting my work day, I'd have about six meetings 
a day, which took up my entire work day. And then around 6 o'clock, I would break for dinner and bedtime for the girls. And then I would go directly back to my computer at around 8 p.m. and work till 2 a.m. in the morning just to catch up with what I should have been working on all day if I wasn't in meetings. So all of my relationships suffered. You know, my relationship with my wife, we weren't communicating. I thought, you know, I'm up to my head, over my head in work. And if I tried to talk to my wife about work, it would probably just go over her head. So I wouldn't, we weren't talking like we should have been. The lack of presence and communication was impacting not only our, my, me and my wife's relationship, but my daughter's as well. And I saw that impacting my prayer life. I, I saw a correlation there. I was making God part of my to-do list. Prayer without love is tantamount to making God out to be our genie in the sky. I want that to sink in. Prayer without love is tantamount to making God out to be our great genie in the sky because relationship is stripped away and you're left with faith and you're left with hope, but there's no love. It's a lonely place to be. In fact, I just read an article recently about how depression is on the rise among adults more so than it has ever been before. And what was the number one thing that they said? It was called busyness. They cited busyness because busyness will rob you of community and relationship. And quite frankly, it'll make you depressed. And just like busyness impacts our relationship with God, I think the voices with which we fill up our heads also do the same thing. Some call this the post-truth era. I, I don't think it's anything particularly new. I think it's been something that's been happening since Adam and Eve, in fact, when the serpent came and appealed to the emotions and the feelings of Adam and Eve. Even when Eve combated it with speaking the truth in her first response, no, God said that if we eat this, we're going to surely die. We read it in Scripture as Pilate concedes, what is truth to Jesus? And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I think it's important, so I'm just going to say this. I think that social media and this information age has done something to us. You see, what it does is, you know, being constantly connected our machines start to learn more about what our likes are than uh, before we even do. They target us based upon our clicks or things that we search. And so they craft this targeted information or propaganda in a lot of cases toward us that appeals to our feelings and appeals to our emotions has maybe a thread of truth, but then the more we, more we consume that, the more truth it becomes to us. And, and so we consult 
social media like Instagram and Facebook and memes and maybe it's your favorite 24-hour news outlet or the community gossip, we consult that in instead of consulting truth himself on our knees in prayer. We don't have time. We're stuck to our devices. And I'm not trying to bash social media. I think it can be a good conduit to uh, relationship building and to community, particularly when you're not near your loved ones. Um, but like I said, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that. I do have a great reference, though, um, an author named Andy Crouch, if you're in interested in digging a little deeper into what he calls uh, the new empire, which is our devices. Um, he calls them glowing rectangles. He has one, so he's not trying to send you back to the Stone Age. I think the, the most important thing here is um, moderation, right? Is being a slave to nothing. And the third and last thing that I was able to identify was what I believe is arguably the most important and impactful, and that's our identity in Christ. How we see ourselves directly affects how we perceive God sees us, and how we perceive God sees us directly affects our relationship with Him in our prayer life. Because, you know, I know myself and what I've done, right? And the more and more we act like God hasn't completely washed us white as snow, the less power we attribute to what happened on the cross and through the resurrection. I went on a, a missions trip out of the country. It was my second one. My first one was to El Salvador when I was in ninth grade. And, and my second one the following year was to Mexico City. Um, we came to a place called uh, the Basilica de Guadalupe, which was an, an old, um, I think, 19th, 18th century church, uh, Catholic church that, um, it's interesting, their culture there, it's, it's kind of um, quasi-Catholicism. But anyway, we were setting up um, to do some street ministry, and um, we're going to be doing some skits and, and handing out tracts and, and doing that sort of thing and talking with people. But as we were setting up, I, I looked over, this was to my left, and I noticed people that were coming up kind of stopped and knelt down on the ground. And the place where we were, it, was, it wasn't concrete, but it was like huge rocks that were put down to, um, to make kind of a foundation. And what they were doing was, little by little, they were moving forward and they were dragging their knees across the rocks. And that was done as a sort of penance. It made me just want to run over to them and say, do you know what you're doing? Do you know who you are in Christ? But I think it was a fundamental misunderstanding of who they are in Christ, and that's why they were doing that. But I think we do the same thing whenever we get on our knees and we 
beg for forgiveness for the same things over and over again to God. I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are in Christ and that we've been washed as white as snow. I think it's also a lie of the devil. The early church, and I mean particularly the the Jewish converts, had a beautiful understanding of the love that God had for them in Jesus. And Paul wrote about Jesus the bridegroom and his bride, the church, and what he called a great mystery. And let's read this, this passage here out of Ephesians 5. It says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined and be faithfully devoted to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery of the two becoming one is great, but I am speaking with reference to the relationship of Christ and the church. That is the two becoming one through the marriage covenant. Christ as the bridegroom and his church the bride. You may have not experienced, you might not be married, um, you might have a bad experience with, with your last marriage or maybe even your current one. Um, but I think we all at some point have witnessed either by experience or watching it unfold in front of us a uh, groom being just completely overcome at the revealing of his bride. Let's, let's watch. I can, just watching that, I can remember myself and how much of a basket case I was um, whenever I was standing on the stage in this beautiful church and my dad was to my left as my best man and they opened the doors and just the revelation of chapel walking down the aisle. I think it's more than, a euf- than like a euphoria at the revelation, though. I think that there's something spiritual that occurs there. And I think this is a glorious shadow of what Christ's love is for his church. You see... Paul and the other devout Jews, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, like the back of his hand. And they would read of, in the prophets how God wed himself to his children at Mount Sinai. And then how the children of Israel forsook God and, and became adulterous and went after other gods. But that how God had a plan to redeem his bride through Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, where God, our Father-in-law in the Old Testament, would become God, our Father-in-love in the New Testament through Jesus Christ and oneness through him. You are God's beloved. And it's from this posture and through this identity that the early church prayed. They didn't have immense faith. Their faith meter wasn't through the roof. 
but they had intimate relationship with God. And I believe prayer changes things. It not only strengthens the relationship like through communication like what Peter had with Jesus, with God in the upper room where he delivered a message to Peter and said, I want you to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But it also changes history. And I see in Scripture where communication with God, um, for instance, Moses, when God's ready to wipe out the children of Israel, Moses pleads with God on their behalf and God relents. I, I look at Hezekiah who the prophet came and told that he was about to die. He was sick, but he pleaded with God for more time and God actually turned back time and gave him 10 more years. And then I look at the church and Peter's freeing from prison before he was executed. I think prayer changes things. But you might be wondering, okay, but what, what about James? You know, at the beginning of the story, James is put to death. Surely they were praying for James as well. You may have a different understanding than me um, about God's will, but, and we can debate about this later, but I, I see God's will as a house that's infinite, it's beautiful. And in fact, I, I just visited um, the Biltmore estate with my wife uh, recently uh, for her golden birthday. It was incredible, it was beautiful, the gardens and the house. There's actually 250 rooms in the house. It's 135,000 square feet of living space, which equates to about 100 of my houses. You do the math. <laughs> but whenever we, entered the, whenever we entered the doors of the house, we paid a little extra for an audio device that, we would, uh, that would tell us more and more you know, about the rooms and kind of direct us where we were supposed to go. And I see that as prayer. You know, we had to kind of, they weren't headphones, so they didn't take out all the noise. But it was a device, and you press, press it against your ear and lean in, try and get away from the noise as much as possible around, the, you know, the clutter of people. But it would direct us, like I said, to, to one room, then the other. On the way, there, there are many hallways. I say many, but there's more like two. There's two different paths that you can take to each room. And a lot of times they had them kind of roped off so you wouldn't walk to the other path. But I think prayer changes things that way too because I see prayer as having the ability to take you from one hallway to the next on your way to the room. And sometimes it's a teleport experience like what Philip had. But a lot of times prayer is going to take you through the clutter of another room and you're going to have to find, make your way through the room to the door in obedience. But I see prayer as having that ability to change your perspective, change your experience. But then 
there's also pathways and staircases that there's, there's no other way. You have to take, you have to walk up a staircase and there's no other outlet and it leads to a long corridor of rooms. And at the end of the room, it kind of comes to a dead end. And I see that as Jesus in the garden praying that God would take the cup from him, but not my will, but yours. I'm going to try to make my way through this. I'm sorry. I mentioned at the beginning that we had a prayer meeting every Tuesday at my old church. And one Tuesday night, it was December 10th, 1996, I had fallen asleep um, and then woken back up, as I typically did (laughs) at those prayer meetings, and made my way down to the altar to say a quick prayer as it was finishing up. And I noticed at the altar, I looked up and I saw my grandpa kind of look down at the floor. And behind me, about 10 feet away, was my mom. Excuse me. She wasn't breathing. So immediately they ushered me out, and I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on. As I was leaving the room, my grandpa had rushed down off the stage and was giving her CPR. You see, I didn't understand it at the time. But I'm convinced that had my mom not died that day, that I wouldn't be here right now. You see, I was the one. I was the one that Jesus left the 99 poor to rescue. I don't know of one single person that walked away from faith that day, but I know one that found his relationship, and he's standing here right now. In closing, and as the band comes up, I'm sorry for being long-winded. I believe, once again, that relationship with God happens through prayer. You know, we can gain all the knowledge and prove Scripture to be true. We can put all our hope and faith or belief in a miracle or in Jesus, but if we don't have love, we are nothing. 
And as I was writing this, I have no idea. Maybe this will mean something to somebody here, but stop beating yourself up for falling asleep while you're praying. I heard it once said, as a father, I never, ever was upset for my child falling asleep on my chest. And that's what God thinks of you. It's time to renew this love relationship with our Savior, with a conversation with the bridegroom. I want everyone to get to a place where they're alone with God. That could mean you move away to an empty part of the room or to a corner, or you kneel where you're at or sit where you're sitting, or as the elders come down front, you pray with the elders. But I want everyone to get alone with God. And wherever you are, I want everyone to close their eyes and visualize the bridegroom speaking this verse from Song of Songs over you. He says, Oh my dove, here in the clefts in the rock, in the sheltered and the secret place of the steep pathway. Let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Jesus is waiting, knocking at the door. He says, emerge from your hiding place. Do not be ashamed or afraid, for you are pure and as beautiful as a dove. Speak to me because your voice is a sweet melody in my ears and your countenance is exquisite. Let us respond to him now.